Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stetter, your host, and today we'll be talking to Tanja Angela Kunz about her new book, Sehnsucht nach dem Guten, or in English, Desire for the Good, which deals with works from Peter Handke, an Austrian novelist and important contemporary writer of German language literature. Um, Tanja Angela Kunz currently holds a postdoc position at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Ms. Kunz, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, the pleasure is mine. Um, okay, well, to start with, uh, let's look at the title of your book, Desire for the Good. So I'm not quite sure whether I've translated it correctly. Um, so could you help me please with the word Sehnsucht? Oh, well, this is a very good question to begin with, because it takes us directly to what I also had to ask myself at the beginning of my research. Back then, of course, I didn't ask myself about translations. But even if there is this typical German word, Sehnsucht, which can surely be translated in a general context with desire or longing, I could not find an actual definition of its meaning. Ah, so it's somehow difficult, isn't it? It is. Only the romantic Sehnsucht is quite well defined. Metaphorically spoken, it is the blue blossom as a metaphysical pursuit of infinity. But there are lots of other contexts, even philosophical ones, where we use the word Sehnsucht. And we even don't know exactly how to distinguish it from other terms like pursuit, wish, but even melancholy or stagnation. Moreover, from a philosophical perspective, it is not clear at all whether, for example, Edmund Husserl's intentionality is a kind of Sehnsucht, or going back to Aristotle, there is this pursuit of eudaimonia, which can also be seen as a kind of desire for a succeeding life. So even if the term Sehnsucht is not explicitly used, it depends on the definitions if you relate it to the concept of desire. In my work, for example, I talk about Ernst Bloch's The Principle of Hope, a book which had a huge success among intellectuals during the 60s. Bloch uses the term Sehnsucht, but he looks at it from its etymological sense as an illness, as a disturbing energy which leads us, we could say, to sit on the couch uh, doing nothing but complaining about the state of loss we're in. Sehnsucht there is the complete opposite to the positive romantic sense of desire, as well as it is the opposite of what Bloch himself understands by hope. So there's a fundamental problem in defining the word Sehnsucht even in German language. But as I became aware of this complexity, 
I started to see it as a chance, not only to collect and explain these different meanings of Sehnsucht in my work, which I also try to do, but also to figure out what Handke specifically understands when he uses the word Sehnsucht. And I found out that he mixes the different meanings and distillates his own definition of it. So to come back to your question, there simply is no unique equivalent for Sehnsucht, neither in English nor in another, any other language. Hmm. And while dealing with philosophical concepts, we often have to adjust the term according to the context. For example, Sehnsucht means the yearning for death in Nietzsche, but in Habermas it refers to the longing for the other. And we need to mix different terms when we look at the translations of Levinas. Even though Levinas wrote in French and used the term desire, désir, but the meanings of desire or désir differ so much that we constantly have to ask ourselves which meaning is implied. Besides, when talking about desire in feminist context, I am thinking about the French psychoanalyst, psychoanalyst Luce Erigeray, for example. Desire has a negative connotation, as it is understood uh, as a border crossing or violence of the other sex some kind of lustfulness. And in reflecting all these different ways of using the term desire, we find ourselves lost in translation and in the middle of a process of definition. I argue that Handke does not mean by Sehnsucht the negative connotations such as illness, melancholy or stagnation. Sehnsucht is something positive in his works, a mixture, we could say, of the Goethean pursuit and a romantic longing for something that will never be reached. His Sehnsucht does not mean that you can, cannot reach any goals. Sehnsucht is understood as an anthropological process that is activated while trying to reach goals. In Handke's works, a new kind of Sehnsucht arises at the moment in which the protagonist come close to reaching a desired goal. So Sehnsucht is a never-ending longing, but it also includes some kind of partial fulfillment. So I would prefer the translation longing for the good, as it better defines the nuance of meaning that Sehnsucht has in Handke's works. Hmm. Uh, I see. So it's rather... A positive concept, so longing would be uh, better. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> um, now the second keyword um, in your title is the good, um, and that is a huge term as well. Um, could you give some sort of uh, definition of what you mean by the good? Yes, it is a very huge term, and um, I will try to cut my answer short this time even if we could talk about the definitions of the good as long as about the definitions of the Sehnsucht. I will give a quick overview of some of my basics. First of all, it is important to say that the good means an ideal which we can never reach in total. Imagining total realization leads us directly to utopia. Secondly, I have to mention 
that ideas about what is defined as good considerably changed over the centuries. Synchronously, our definition of good differs from one individual to the other. And when we use it in our everyday language, there are also several tri trivial meanings of the good. We don't mean an ideal, but a qualification that divides things we prefer from things we like less. But this qualification doesn't say anything about whether the supposed good is really favorable for us or not. By contrast, when dealing with the good as an ethical category, we think about it from a much wider perspective, if not from a general one. Ethical concepts tend to be valid for every human being. So to sum up, there are basically two essential questions we have to ask from an ethical standpoint. What kind of human being do I want to be? And what shall I do? This is the distinction between ethics of being, as you can find them, for example, in antiquity, and ethics of duty. The most popular example is Kant's categorical imperative. There are many more distinctions, but uh, that would lead us too far for the moment. Still, I would like to mention at least another field where the good came to great importance in history. It is the field of aesthetics or, specifically, literature. For a long period of time, the good was part of classical trias together with beauty and truth. During 19th century, philosophers started to challenge this trias. And finally, Nietzsche separated it in his transvaluation of all values. So, modern writers like Peter Handke cannot go back to his former unit of the to, So, modern writers like Peter Handke cannot go back to this former unit of the good, the beautiful, and the true. If writers pursue an orientation on the good, they have to reflect upon that historical loss. Well, now to turn to uh, Peter Handke, um, what some of our listeners might maybe know about him is uh, that his writing has been accused to be a narcissist. Um, okay, um, this somehow makes me think about the recent accusations against Donald against uh, Donald Trump of not being mentally healthy. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, anyway, um, could you tell us what this accusation against Hanke is all about? <laughs> yes, narcissism associated uh, with power is an old theme in politics. <laughs> And the question behind it, as psychoanalysis poses it, relates to the doubt whether power in general can be conceived without narcissism. But this is not uh, the background of the so-called accusation of narcissism against a whole generation of writers during the 1970s and parts of the 1980s. The mythical image of narcissus is what you have to have in mind. Narcissus is not powerful at all. He is self-absorbed. He fatally revolves around himself. So this accusation of narcissism refers only to the representation of the ego in literature. 
several authors and also Peter Handke were criticized for making themselves the major topic of their own work. But even Handke's intervention during the war in Yugoslavia has, and I would say falsely, been seen in this context. However, it is very important to think about this accusation of narcissism because if you take it seriously, there cannot be a moral concept in Handke's literature because morality is always oriented towards the other. In my study, I argue that the moral concept of Handke's writing does not begin with the other, like Levinas, for example, does, but rather with a formation or if you want, a transformation of self. Handke's works tend to show the ways in which the protagonists transform themselves. As I already mentioned, most of his works end as soon as the desired goal is reached or even immediately before its realization. The reader can guess the completion. And by showing the path of transformation as one possible strategy to solve problems, he offers an insight on how every human being can transform. And from there on, also the world may partly be changed. To point out more clearly, trying to find ways to transform yourself means developing some sort of ethical conduct that can show positive effects on the whole community. To put it in other terms, to find ways of self-transformation is the only power we really have to change anything. Because from an ethical point of view, if we try to change other people rather than ourselves, we would violently cross the border or the center of power that is owned by the other. So Handke starts by the self and tries to show how to initiate self-transformation. That is what I call the ethic of the self in my study. And within this ethic of the self, there is also an aspect of Handke's works that I call ethical narcissism, which might seem to be a paradox after all I've said, right? Um, no, no, uh, I see. Um, so um, observation of the self uh, seems just uh, important from an ethical perspective. As time went by, the mythical image of the self-engrossed narcissist has been associated either in a positive or in a negative way with a tendency of poets to introspection. In German Romanticism, for example, the image of the po poet as narcissist is understood as an ideal of unity with God's creation. In the 20th century, however, the image turned into a negative one. Freud, influences, uh, Freud influence played an important role in this shift of perspective. He divided between primary narcissism and secondary narcissism. Primary narcissism describes the condition of babies. Freud mentioned that their way of experiencing is autistic, narcissistic, filled with sexual and destructive fantasies. And the child, as it evolves as an individual, learns to sublimate this primary narcissism and respect the rights of the other. But the mythological figure of narcissus and Freud's view 
failed this evolution, and when he suddenly made a step towards the other, Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection. And as you may know, Freud saw writers as personalities that failed several steps of sublimation. Handke came to be accused of the same fail, failed sublimation. But for example, in his journal The Weight of the World from 1977, he distinguishes between two kinds of narcissism. A newer, sterile one, where you are simply gazing at yourself in the mirror, and a long, inquiring look at yourself, which paves the way for a deep encounter with the other. So here again, we find this moral duty to care for yourself first, and then open up and care for others. From this background, Handke gives us a new interpretation of mythological story of Narcissus. Similar to Romanticism in, and in opposition to Freud, he shows a positive image of Narcissus as a principle of, mor as a principle of moral authorship. By looking at himself, the narcissistic author shapes not only an image of himself, but also creates a mirror in which other people can reflect themselves. The outcoming creation, the narrative, the book, is this kind of mirror. The book does not show a unity with God's creation as in Romanticism, but it provides an access for everybody to reflect their own personality in the light of another person. And we can call this form an ethical narcissism. Hmm. Yeah, an interesting uh, concept of the self Hanke has indeed. Um, yeah, all, all right. Um, so you have uh, divided the representation of the good into uh, four parts within your books. And I would just suggest uh, following this clustering and starting with the first pattern of the representation of the good, which is uh, the peripetia towards the good, And um, this term sounds uh, quite abstract, so um, could you explain what you mean by it and maybe clarify it with an example? Yeah, that's right. I divided the representations of the good in Handke's works into perpetia, the good in the off, the good as diaphane, and the good in gaps. Right. With the first one, peripetia, I seek to, to mediate between two opposite research opinions related to Handke's works in general and their development, development in time. Some scholars argue that Handke's works continuously develop. Others observe that there are breaks, dead ends and reschedulings. I argue that in each single work by Peter Handke you can find several breaks and turns ecstatic moments um, or the sudden loss and regain of connections to space and time, for example, in The Long Way Round from 1979, may be seen as, as such peripetia. This is the difference to classical peripetia and dramatic theory, where there is only one exceptional turning point. So let's take a look at Handke's early narration of a journey through America as he describes it in his novel short letter Long Farewell from 1972. This journey is interwoven with the story of separation. 
the protagonist permanently fears and finds signals that his wife is hunting him and wants to murder him. We don't know if this is reality of, or imagination. But in fact, the former lover, lovers have turned into rivals. And in the end, like in a Western movie, the protagonist and his wife meet in a dual situation. The first peripetia is the deconstruction of this dangerous situation. They do not shoot at each other. This is the first development towards a good ending. But the next peripetia takes place after the situation, when both meet Western director John Ford in his home garden in Bel Air. They start a conversation with Ford and tell him about their story. It is a state of mutual narration that in the end changes the former rivals into peaceful, separated human beings. So, as you see, there is not one single moment of peripetia, but several ones. Let's go on. Um, the next uh, aspect is um, the good and the off. Um, and I mean, I only uh, know the term off in relationship with movies. Um, for example, in some movies, uh, there's a speaker from the off, which means that the speaker does not participate in the movie, um, but only gives explanations, you know. Um, but uh, do you mean something similar when you uh, address uh, Hanke's work with the term off? Yes, indeed. You're right. I borrowed this term from movie semiotics and applied it to Hanke's prose. As you may know, movies are important for Hanke, so um, some even call his prose compositions cinematographic in the way the reader follows the narration. In films, offstage actions are of great importance for the actions on stage, but cannot be seen. So the major question is, how can something happen offstage in prose? Let me explain this with an example, namely Handke's autobiographical inspired story, A Sorrow Beyond Dreams from 1972. This is probably one of the darkest and most pessimistic works of Peter Handke. In this story, Handke deals with the suicide of his mother and links it to reflections about the autobiographical genre. This genre gives the narrator a well-defined writing formula, but he discovers that his mother's life does not fit in any of these common ways to narrate, narrate somebody's life. Furthermore, these writings are not adequate to describe the emotional state of the son when he receives the news of his mother's suicide. The life of the mother is presented as a negative coming-of-age novel. The society she is surrounded by is claimed guilty for not letting her form her own personality. The social restrictions of self-fulfillment lead her to illness and death. A story like this can hardly end happily, and in fact, it doesn't end happily at all. We leave the son in a state of great melancholy and the end of, at the end of the novel. He calls it the horror vacui in consciousness. But then, suddenly, 
there is a little anticipation of future light. Not only is the son somehow proud of his mother and of her decision to commit suicide, because it, it is the first action that frees her from social convention. But he is also announcing that he will write more about all this later. And I argue in my analysis that the novel The Left-Handed Woman from 1977 is the sequel. Here, a woman frees herself from the convenience of socially accepted ways of life. This forecast of a later compensation in A Sorrow Beyond Dreams is one way Hanke realizes the good in the off. Hanke finds different strategies to produce this effect, for example, in three essays, Essay about tiredness from 1989, Essay about the jukebox from 1990, and Essay about the successful day from 1991. The different strategies of foretelling and anticipation gives the reader the impression that narration has to continue even if the written one has to end. And the anticipations break up with the former content and open for some other, maybe later, form of happy ending. So, Fad, um, the third pattern is uh, the good in the diaphane, and here you deal with breaks and silences. Um, so, how is silence interrelated with Hanke's orientation towards the good? Uh, well... First of all, I have to explain that breaks belong to the dramatic genre, while silence and quietness belong to drama and prose in Handke's works. In Handke's prose, quietness is presented as a positive condition. It is opposed to soul-destroying noise, which does not mean that every kind of sound is disruptive, but the condition of writers or observers in which Hanke's characters find themselves, are often disturbed by noise. In Hanke's prose, there is a distinction between a good and a bad kind of silence. The good one opens up for the world. The bad one makes the individual close in himself and separates him from the outside world. So, in the longing for silence and quietness, there is always the danger of falling into bad silence, which leads the protagonist to find strategies to create moments of good silence. In his dramas, Handke makes a broad use of breaks and silence sequences, as we can read in the stage directions. Traditionally, breaks are conceived as temporal interruptions of action. The spectator waits for the play to continue, so the way can be understood as a sort of negation of the action that is presented on stage. Handke accumulates and widens the intermittence in his plays. For example, in The Ride Across Lake Constance from 1971, he forces an interruption of action which is twice as long as a normal break. In my analysis, I try to show that these exceptionally long moments of silence lead the spectator to a critical reflection 
on the lack of understanding between the characters of the play. The good here is not anticipated as in the off, but the dramatic structure systematically allows slots of time to reflect on the interactions during the performance. We could name this a hermeneutics of silence or a performative expression of a complex textual action. Interesting observation and uh, interesting uh, word for it. Um, so uh, last but not least, um, the good in gaps. Um, to me, this sounds uh, quite similar to the last pattern, uh, the good within silence, you know, um, because silence and gaps uh, seem to be somehow similar. Um, so why do you uh, establish a force category and what is the difference to the last one? Well, there's a whole philosophical concept behind the term gap in Handke's poetics. But to confine it from silence um, is a quite good way to approach to it. First of all, gaps describe spatial relations between objects as they appear at a certain moment to one subject. They function as links between clearly outlined things, but the perception of gaps is purely individual. It is a mode of viewing while silence can either be an inner or an external condition. Silence and breaks can be played out as in Handke's dramas, or they can be reflected upon as in Handke's prose works. But gaps, you can only find them in Handke's narrations. When gaps come to the protagonist's consciousness, a part of the world becomes one without losing the difference. So gaps make things that are normally separated come together. But this is not the only way Hanke uses the image of gaps. We normally focus on things, but we seldom pay attention to the gap between them. Or we just focus on, on the gap, for example, if something we desire is too far away from another thing we want to obtain. The gap, then, is focused as a problem. So as gaps are connected to the psychological shape of the subject, they can be either good or bad. But within the conceptual framework of my research, I try to show as this, that this fluctuating topographical space stands for a dynamic zone that is important for the evolution of Handke's protagonists. I'm afraid we've already taken a lot of your time, um, but maybe one last question. Um, within the research literature concerning Handke, it has been often stated this, that descriptions are essential for Handke, right? And that therefore he's less a narrator. However, as I see it, uh, you do not share this opinion. Why not? In the modern period, description has been seen as an unethical way of writing because it depicts the separation of the human being from nature. By contrast, narration is about human beings, their activities and fate. Ethically speaking, narration is oriented on the other, but description stays within the observation of things and therefore lingers, lingers in isolation. Handke himself equally speaks of narration and description in his journals and works. 
And since he is also a great translator, but he only translates authors that are interesting to him in the way they treat language, he often adapts some of the ideas of other writers or draws inspiration from them. And Handke translated, for example, Francis Ponge, a French writer who only worked with descriptions. However, Ponge transforms descriptions so that it turns out to relate to the subject. For him, description is a way to express inner countenance. The perceptions of the world are relocated so deeply inside the subject that they can be qualified as narrative. Ponge gives a new moral relevance to objects and their descriptions. In my opinion, Hanke's descriptions are constructed with the same modus operandi. The capability to describe the world in this the capability to describe the world in his works even derives from the analogy between the emotions of the subject and the object. To make an example, in the long way round, the description of a storm with menacing clouds mirrors the protagonist's bad mood. And if you read about snow falling in Handke's works, you know that the beginning of something new is coming up and the protagonist is nearly reaching the goal he was longing for. Yeah, uh, okay, Ms. Kunz, um, that sounds like a great book of yours indeed. Um, so, so, yeah, I want to thank you for being uh, on you. the show today and I uh, really enjoyed it. So um, take care. I enjoyed it too. Take care too. Thank you very much. <laughs>